0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Lord, all week we hear so many words. And they fly at us from the radio and from the television and from the people around us. And Some of those words damage us and some of those words are okay, but your word, your word alone, Touches deep into our hearts and gives us life. And this morning, right now, your word is what we need. And we trust in faith that your word is what we're going to receive. Prepare us, Lord, now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you something. How many of you really love waiting for stuff? I mean, just raise your hand if, like, you pull onto the highway and you see bumper-to-bumper traffic, you go, awesome! That's awesome. Or if you see only one cash register line open at the store and and, and the person is just chewing their gum and taking their time, and you're like, awesome! How many of you love waiting? See, I don't think anybody really likes waiting. Waiting is a really, really hard thing to do. I mean, think about the fact that every time we talk about waiting, it's almost always in a negative light. We think about waiting rooms. They're not good places. We think about waiting periods. If you're anxious to buy a gun, you've got to sit through a waiting period. There's all these waiting periods, aren't there? Uh, how many of you got waitlisted at a school that you wanted to get into? Anybody? I, I, I've been, am I the only one who's ever been waitlisted? You guys are geniuses. I've been waitlisted in a lot of places. How many of you have asked someone out on a date and they said, I'll let you know next week what I decide? See, waiting is hard. And what makes waiting so difficult? I think in part it's because waiting is where our desires and our limitations intersect. Waiting is where we want something, but we have to admit that we are now powerless to make it happen. I want you to think of it this way. Waiting is what we do when there is nothing else that we can do. None of us waits unless we have to wait. And that's why anything that we have control over, we do all that we can. And when we've exhausted all our resources and all of our cleverness, when all that we have left now is to just wait, that's what we do. Some of us are in denial even of that. We stand at an elevator and we push the button over and over like somehow we add to the acceleration of that machine by pushing the button. The truth is waiting is what we do when we must absolutely admit that we have reached the limit of our abilities and now someone else, whether you believe it's God or some faceless cosmic force, someone else is now responsible for the outcome of this situation. I think that's a very, very tough thing to have to go through. Now a lot of us, we we frame waiting in terms of something good that we've been waiting for. A longing for a child, or for a spouse, or uh, for a promotion, or something. We wait for a good thing, and that's also pretty hard. But it can be much more difficult when we're waiting for a difficult thing to end. When you're in some kind of pain or trouble or you're gripped by worry and the situation in your life feels overwhelming, bigger than you're able to handle, and it doesn't seem to go away, in that kind of sense, waiting can be extremely difficult to do, can it? That's the kind of context that King David was in when he wrote the words of Psalm 40. We don't know the exact historical context. We don't know what was going on in David's life the way we did last time when he wrote Psalm 1. In this case, all we know from the evidence is what the psalm tells us. He was in really bad trouble. He was in a bad way. And I want to interact with all of Psalm 40, but I want to focus especially on the first three verses. Listen to what it says. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, and many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Any you 2 fans in the room? You probably recognize those words. Bono didn't write them. It was in the Bible, and they appear in a U2 song called 40, believe it or not. Guess where they got the song title from? This is Psalm 40, right? And it's a song that describes somebody who is in a really bad way, and they are being made to wait, to endure through this situation. And these are the words that burst out of King David when he was in that place. Listen to the words, the powerful phrases he uses To describe the kind of situation he found himself in. The first word, the word the first word he uses is pit of destruction. Does that sound to any of you like a good thing? David's describing where he is in his life, and the best words he can come up with is I am in a pit of destruction. If you've ever looked down into a well or looked down from inside of a cave and you see that, that kind of, of opening in the sky, and you think, that's what it feels like to be in a pit. And inside this pit, inside this enclosure, there is just this never-ending onslaught of destructive forces. Do you ever feel like that? Maybe a lawsuit that doesn't want to go away. A difficult relative who has made your life hell for all of the years that you can remember. Financial trouble, illness, a difficult child, something that's going on in your life, maybe even a feud with the neighbor, but it's like it's going to overwhelm you. You can't handle it anymore. And the thing about it is, it seems like it's not going to ever go away. You've turned it around and around in your mind, and no matter how many times you look at it, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It seems like this problem is permanent in your life. The pit of destruction is all about being struck, being attacked relentlessly, over and over and over. And some of you can definitely relate to David when he says that. He uses another interesting word to describe the way that he's feeling. He calls it a miry bog. Will somebody advance the slide for me? This thing's not working. Just hit, hit the next slide. Thank you. A miry bog. In season three of Man Vs. Wild. Thank you. <clears throat> in Season 3 of Man Vs. Wild, any Man Vs. Wild fans, you love Bear Grylls? That man is crazy. Something is missing upstairs, and this guy is just crazy. Well, I, I was sent a clip um, by, by Pastor Matt when he heard that I was preaching on Psalm 40. He immediately thought of Bear Grylls. And in Season 3, there's an episode where he goes to Ireland... And he's hungry, and he's in a bog, and he sees a dead sheep floating on the surface of the bog. And he figures he's just going to strip down to his underwear, jump in the bog, and pull this dead sheep out. I don't know if you've ever seen a sheep. They're pretty heavy. But watching Bear try to pull this dead sheep out of this bog starts to give you a very vivid picture of just how sticky, how entrapping a bog really can be. Dogs are difficult things. And, and when you see this picture, what you realize is David's describing not just being struck, but he's describing being stuck. And those two things often go together, don't they? Those two feelings of being like, I'm getting attacked, life is too much for me, and then it, I can't seem to move on from this place. This difficult person or this difficult situation keeps following me. I, I go over here, have you ever, like, if you don't like dogs and you visit a person who's got dogs... Doesn't it just seem like that dog only wants to be around you all the time? It's just that you're like walking over here, and the dog, (laughs) and he's chasing you, and it just feels like that. Like, I just want to get away from you, and I can't seem to. And for some of us, that is exactly what it feels like right now in our lives. I bet you every one of us can relate to that feeling sometime in the past. Some of you are thick in it right now, and it's hard for you to breathe, to get your bearings, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I absolutely promise you that if you continue breathing for a few more years, you're going to be there someday. This is just a part of life. We get attacked by difficult things. We get stuck in difficult situations. And in those times, God sometimes calls us to stick it out, to wait and to endure until that season of our lives passes. What David is showing us in Psalm 40 is there is a right way and a wrong way to wait. And there is a way that we can wait when we're forced to wait that brings honor to God and great encouragement to ourselves and to other people. If you kick back a couple of slides there, I want to show you the first thing that we learn from David is that we're supposed to cry out for help cry out for help. Look at what what, uh, verse 1 says there. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined, and he heard my cry. We've all been, I'm sure, looking at the news, viewing images, and uh, hearing news reports out of Haiti in the aftermath of the earthquake. And some of the stories that move me the most are from the survivor's who finally got rescued in the 11th hour. The ones who were nearly dead of thirst, they thought they weren't going to make it. And here's the situation they describe, very reminiscent of some of the survival stories told after 9-11 attacks in New York City back in 2001. Stories told of people trapped under layers of rubble They can see slivers of sunlight coming in. They can hear the sounds from outside, but they're pinned down, they're weak, they're dehydrated, and no matter how much they shout, no one can seem to hear them. And finally, they're just so weak. And then they hear the rubble being moved, and it it seems evident that people are trying to get at the people trapped in their section of the rubble. But then it seems like they're saying oh, we're just going to move on, there's nobody here. And that person's stuck, they can see them, they can hear them, and they're trying to make themselves heard, and they can't do it. And finally, at the last minute, with all the reserves of strength, they shout out, they cry out, I'm here! And someone with a sharp ear hears them, and they know that there's a survivor, and they dig them out. And that story is repeated over and over and over in the aftermath of natural catastrophes like that. It's important when rescue is close by that we cry out. You know, um, some of us were taught that we should suffer in silence, especially if we were raised Asian. And I don't mean to always single out Asian people, but there's so many of us out here. Listen, if you were raised Asian, a lot of times you were taught it is noble and it is right to shut up and suffer in quiet. We don't want to hear it. Just do one of these. This is a classic Asian move. Just just internalize it. Get that inner ninja strength and suppress it and life will pass you by and you'll be over it in time. That's the way a lot of us were raised. But you know, that's a very unhealthy thing. It's good advice for small things. For minor troubles, it's wonderful advice because, hey, let's face it, nobody likes a whiner. If you're whining about every little thing, just move on. But when you're in real trouble, when you're really getting attacked and you're stuck, you absolutely have to learn how to cry out for help. But here's the important part you have to know who you're crying out to. There are some people who will cry out to anyone but God when they're stuck. See, for God, they they turn to him for the little things like give me food for tomorrow and you know they know food keeps coming. So they trust God with all the little stuff. But when life really turns up the heat, they have serious doubts about whether an invisible God can actually come and handle this real life situation. And if we're honest about it, some of us feel that way. There are lots of things I can pray about, but there's this one big thing in my life. This thing that is so painful... It's so big, I've never been able to make it change. I've, had, I've nagged, I've grilled on it, I've worked out, I've done whatever I can, and this thing won't go away. It just never changes. I'm stuck. And I, you start to feel like even God cannot address that situation. It's bigger even than God. And so you give up all hope. And there are some people who have this crisis of faith and they will not turn to God, even though, in fact, God is the only one who can offer any real help. We find a really powerful illustration of this in the life of a guy named Asa, who was king of Judah in the time of civil war, when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel split from each other, just like in American history, and they were enemies with one another. And in the life of Asa, there came a time early on when he was a religious reformer. He did a lot of really good things that honor the Lord. But those things were relatively easy because he was the man in charge, and what he decided, everybody had to do. But later in his career, the king of the northern kingdom, his his rival, a guy named Basha, began advancing slowly on his territory. He had raised a very large army, and he was creeping towards Judah, one city at a time, and he began to make him sweat a little bit. Asa was getting nervous. All his advisors and prophets said, Listen, Asa, you've got to trust God. He will protect us. But Asa saw the dust of a very large army on the horizon. And he said, You know, I know that God protects us from a lot of things, but that's a real army with a real king and real arrows and spears. I'm not so sure that prayer is going to be enough. And so he sends messengers out to a guy named Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, who also had a very large army. And he forms an alliance And when Syria and Judah team up, it is just too big an adversary, and Basha backs down, and all of Judah rejoices. Everybody thinks this is a victory, a shrewd, wise, political and military move, but God is not pleased with Asa because he was meant in that trial to turn to God and not to the king of a neighboring country. God raises up the prophet Hanani who says to Asa, you messed up, dude. You were supposed to trust God and you trusted the king of Syria. That is not what the people of God do. And Asa was so infuriated by what Hanani was saying that he threw him in prison. And there's something about ignoring God, blowing God off. It starts to infect every area of our lives. It starts to get worse and worse and worse over time. Towards the end of Asa's life, God tried one last time to get his attention. He gave him a very, very serious disease in his feet that made his feet waste away. And listen to what it says. What's going on? There we go. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa developed a a serious foot disease. Even when the disease became life-threatening, he did not seek the Lord's help, but sought help only from his physicians. I don't want to point fingers because I've been in that place myself. I've been in a place where I preach about faith, but in my own life, when push came to shove, there were times when I took matters into my own hands, when I really didn't believe that God might be able to come down and rescue me from this. I thought to myself, oh, if I'd started praying earlier, maybe, but right now it's just too late. God can't rescue us from this. Even when it cost him his own life, Asa didn't learn the lesson that our help comes from God. Towards the end of the book of Psalms, an unknown psalmist wrote these words, Don't put your confidence in powerful people. There is no help for you there. When their breathing stops, they return to the earth, and in a moment, all their plans come to an end. But happy are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, whose hope is in the Lord their God. And you know, these are words that I think some of us really need to hear today. Because we trust God for the little stuff, but for the big stuff, we turn to our bank accounts, or to our parents, or to our friends, or to the strength of our own will and determination, because we don't really believe God really rescues stuff, people from the big stuff. Who do you instinctively turn to, when you're up against the biggest trial of your life? I mean, let's face it, I've walked with a lot of you. I could probably name the defining trial of your life. And so could most of the friends around you. It's the big one, the one that really defines you, the one that keeps you awake at night and breaks your heart, makes you feel like you're losing the taste for life. What is that trial in your life? And let me ask you, who do you instinctively turn to when it's got the best of you? Who do you dial for help? And listen to what David testifies. When he cried out to God, what was God's response? Every single time. God inclined and he heard his cry. You should have no doubts about the God who receives your prayers. He's not crossing his arms going, they're not serious enough, they're not fasting enough, they're not praying in tongues enough, they're not, this. I want to make them jump through more hoops to just see how serious they are. One cry of help from a child to his father, and that father hears. Doesn't it ever amaze you that in a crowded room you hear all this noise, but then the mom you're talking to all of a sudden, she goes, hold on, I heard my baby crying. I'm like, how do you hear anything? That could have been a stray cat. Oh, no, no. A mother knows the sound of a particular baby. And she'll go like this. She'll go, wait, wait, wait. Oh, no, it's nuts. nothing serious. It's a fake cry. It's an irritated cry. But once in a while, the mom will go, hold on. I'll be right back. And she runs because that's a real cry. That's like, help me, mommy. Help me, daddy. And if you're a parent and you know that sound, you do not go, well, let me give it a second try there. Let me, see. Let me wait till they're really in pain, and then I'll come running. The heart of a father... Is that any time the child cries out in genuine desperation for help, that father is there. We gotta learn to trust that God is the one who hears, who inclines Himself to us. Whenever we cry out for real help. There's a second thing we learn from the life of David as he's going through this very difficult period of his life, and that is simply this: we're called to wait patiently. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And you know, it seems like that's an unnecessary duplication of words because waiting and patiently seem like they should be synonymous, but they're not. A lot of people don't wait patiently. They wait like this. When's the bus going to get here? Come on, geez. And you see the guy at the airport. Is that plane finally here? This is ridiculous. I'm going to call the manager. Give me, your, give me your boss's phone number. They don't know how to wait for anything. They bite their nails. They drink jolt and caffeinated drinks. and They're hyper they don't know how to wait. And what God says is, when we wait, we need to learn how to wait patiently. In most survival situations, they say that panic kills. And that's a little, that's a little tricky because in most survival situations, panic is what comes most naturally to us. When you're in, in danger, you're not thinking, "All right. How can I get out of this situation wisely? You're freaking out, aren't you? I I know most of us guys wish we could be like Jason Bourne. And in our minds, in our fantasy life, we think we're going to be like that. People start shooting and we're going to be like, whoa, what was that? It was a bullet. And we feel like we're going to be shooting back like this. You know what? You're going to be the guy in the movies like, ah, ah, just panicking. Not even looking where you're shooting. In your mind, you're so cool. But under fire, most of us just freak out. We flail about we yell at anybody who's nearby we hit things we punch holes in walls we're not good in survival situations and that's the tough part what you want most instinctively to do is what will get you in deeper trouble i remember how vividly you can get stuck in the in the bog i was my brother and i when i was visiting him in his village in africa in kenya we decided to take our oldest children and a guide from the village named Elkana, and we're going to climb Kip Kanur. It's a 10,000-foot peak, but we're starting at 7,000 feet, so it's not as impressive as it sounds. We got to the top of it. We ate lunch on this little outcropping of rock above the cloud layer, something that my son Noah will never forget. And we're eating sandwiches, and we felt like we were in heaven. The clouds are all below us. And on the way down, here's the thing about it. You don't ever want to be away from home in Africa after dark because the roads become very dangerous and I'm not just talking about potholes I'm talking about people who put trees on the road and when your cars stop they shoot you and take all of your things and that was no imagined danger just months before in that very same region many people had been killed in a bus under those exact circumstances and so we see the sun starting to go down and our guide looks worried and when the guide looks worried you start panicking you're like Khan, is everything okay he goes Everything's very well. Don't worry about it. But then he's looking around, and I'm like, this dude doesn't know where we are. He's lost. So I'm whispering to my brother, he goes, just give him some time. We're going all over the place. Even me, with my no sense of direction, I'm like, I think we've been here before. He finally goes, I, I know where, where we're going. He takes us down this path, and I see this big field, what looks like mud, with giant holes stuck in it. And I'm like, what is this? And I just stepped out, thinking it was going to be solid, and I sank. It was about two feet of very soft mud. And again, you know how in your mind you think in a situation like that, you can be like, whatever, I'll just kind of walk through. I look like an idiot. It was so difficult to get through this field. My brother had his shoes tied on pretty tight, and he had his foot in there, and he pulled his foot out, and he was barefoot. This mud pulled off not just his shoe, but his sock. I've never experienced anything like this. And so my first reaction was, oh, man, we're going to start sinking. And I panicked. And we're like, we've got to get home. The sun is going down. And I tried to run as fast as I could through this. And I, I just kept getting stuck, more and more stuck. Finally, I decided we need to calm down. And I just started slowly, methodically putting one foot in front of the other. It felt like eight hours walking across this maybe 50-foot stretch of boggy mud. It was the closest I've ever come to quicksand, and now I have a fresh appreciation for what that stuff can be like. And what I learned that day is flailing is natural, but it makes everything worse. You guys all know stop, drop, and roll, but you know, most people who are on fire, they're too busy burning to remember to stop, drop, and roll. And I know that that's where many of us are even right now. We've exhausted every friend. Anytime you, you know, you, they they see you coming a mile away, you're like, hey, can we meet at Starbucks? And like, um, I have something I can't meet with you because you've flailed on them enough already. They they've heard it from every possible angle, and what God's saying to you right now is, listen, calm down. I'm in control of this, and the more you flail, the more stuck you're going to get. I see a couple things I want to just point out to you that David did that were so important to help him wait patiently, because it's so difficult to do that. How did he pull it off? Well, look at this. One thing he did is he's, he delights in God's word. He focuses on God. He says, I delight to do your will, oh my God, your law is within my heart. Why is that important? Because for most Christians, pain and suffering give us this idea that we've got permission to be bad right now. No one, not even God, would blame us for acting out a little bit because I'm in deep pain. It's as if pain gives us a license to be morally sloppy and disregard God. Sure, I'm being a little angry. I'm being a little materialistic. I'm being a little selfish and I'm saying mean things and venomous shooting out of my mouth. I'm using language I wouldn't normally use. Sure, I'm, but who's going to blame me? Wouldn't anybody act like this under the circumstances? And God says, well, maybe you think that, but not everybody acts like that under the circumstances. There are some people called the people of God who acknowledge Him no matter what's going on in their lives. Your pain doesn't make God's authority somehow irrelevant. Your pain doesn't suddenly change the rules of the universe so that evil gives you progress. Your pain absolutely necessitates that you remember what God has told us about the right way to live For in that way, you will make it to the other side of that bog and out of that pit of destruction. And it's so important for us to hear that. You know, listen, waiting patiently doesn't mean just idly sitting there waiting for rescue to come. I love the way Tony Evans puts it. Waiting patiently for God is like this. It is being diligent and active in our obedience, but within the boundaries of what God has permitted and commanded He's saying that it means not taking shortcuts or using artificial accelerants to get what you want outside of God's timing. Basically, what he's saying is no matter how impatient you're feeling and how stuck you feel, how afraid or in pain you are, God's Word still stands as the only reliable guide for you in times like that. And it's so important when you're under duress that you focus more than ever on what God has said to us about the way to walk, putting one foot in front of the other. I also see something else David did that was very wise. He says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. What's David doing right there? Well, yes, he's saying some things to God, but he's not just talking to God. He's speaking truth to his own heart. Do you understand that? All these things that David writes to God, he's not just trying to get brownie points with God. I mean, Doesn't that just sound like something if you're trying to be a total brown noser in God's classroom? You're like, oh God, you are like awesome, you will not restrain mercy. But he's saying it to himself as much as he's saying it to God. The prophet Jeremiah said something interesting. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You know what he's saying? Your heart is a liar. It's a stinking forked tongued liar. Your heart doesn't tell the truth. And it gets even worse when you're afraid or under panic. Yet the ironic thing, the sad thing, is that we spend so much time listening to our deceitful hearts and hardly any time speaking God's truth to that unruly heart. See, it's not enough to just go, here's where I am right now. You know, we do that across the coffee shop table, just, you know, with real concern in our eyes. Let me tell you where I am. Let me tell you what my heart is telling me. And everyone's yawning because, look, your heart's a stinking liar. And you've written Pulitzer Prize winning novels and stuff about what your heart is saying to you. When's the last time you talked to him and said, shut up? You don't know what you're talking about. Heart, you're so stupid. You love lies, especially the ones that rob you of joy and hope and life. We have to learn to say to our hearts, you're an idiot. You don't know what God can do. I need to tell you, heart, what God is and what he has said and what he can do. And so so David is writing this for the benefit of his heart. Do you get that? There are times when when I'm uh, talking to one child, but I want another child to be nearby. Do you get that? Because both children need to hear this. And David is writing for God, but man, his heart has to remember that this God of ours, he's this kind of God. He doesn't restrain his mercy. He doesn't play games with the people he loves. He is waiting to deliver his people. And let me tell you one other thing, right just in, in closing out this point that David does. He says, Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. Basically, what I'm saying is he, he speaks the truth not only to his own heart, but he speaks honestly to God. What is David feeling? He's feeling impatient. And what is he saying to God? Hurry up! Please hurry. I'm not going to pretend as some gesture of spiritual maturity that I'm okay with my situation forever. I'm not going to pretend that I have some saint-like patience or ability to endure. What I'm saying to you is I will, I will sit this out as long as it takes, but Lord, you need to know I am dying inside. You can't come fast enough. I'm not just saying, oh, whenever, whenever. You know, people give you good advice. They say, the Lord knows what he's doing, brother or sister. Just wait, and you'll get that longing of your heart soon enough in God's time. And you're going, but God's time is so slow. I need it now. I want it yesterday. It's Valentine's Day today. For some of you, that's just a horrible thing, isn't it? Because who's my Valentine? And you're saying in your heart... I don't want a Valentine next year or in God's time. I want a Valentine February 14th, 2010. That's today, by the way, if your calendar's broken. It's okay to be impatient and honest before God. I don't mean it's okay to be impatient. What I'm saying is it's okay to tell God that's what you're feeling. I don't know where we get this idea that what God wants is a bunch of lies that sound very pious. Because it's like God already knows what's inside. How do you fool God? That's like telling the person at the airport x-ray, I don't have any weapons, and he's looking at the gun right there. It's stupid. And so, so what we're doing here is we're saying to God, I will wait as long as I have to, but I'm telling you like my father what I'm really feeling inside. And that really helped David that he had an outlet to be honest to God. All those things taken together help David be patient while he's waiting, to go against the grain of his nature and stop flailing about in a panic and let God do what God has to do. And let me give you one last thing that I think really helps us learn how to wait in a way that glorifies God. Are you still with me? We've got just a few more minutes together. The last thing that David teaches us here is that we're called to testify boldly listen to what he says he put a new song in my mouth a song of praise to our god and many will see and fear and put their trust in the lord you know because these verses are written after the fact we can presume that god showed up that there was glorious deliverance and david is now looking backwards in time and saying God was awesome and after everything was done and he showed himself to be my rescuer, he put a new song in my mouth and it was a song of praise to God and as a result of that song I was singing, many other people also saw God and put their trust in him. You know, recently, my daughter Zoe began to write her name in cursive everywhere just everywhere. This is right off the marker board in our basement. It was one of the instances she had covered the whole board. I just brought the camera real up close. And, and so she's writing Zoe, and she's so proud of herself. And we're like, wow, you're so young, and you know how to write cursive. We're so proud of you. You're amazing, Zoe. And she's just glowing and basking in the praise. But then we asked her an important question the other day. Jeannie asked her, who taught you how to write your name in cursive? And because she was loving the praise, she wanted all the credit for herself. So she goes, no one. I taught myself. There's a problem with that statement. It's a lie. We know that her sister Jordan taught her how to do that. Jordan's sitting at the top of the stairs looking all offended and like, whatever, like she taught herself how to write cursive. And that whole scene, though at one level was kind of cute, really bothered me. It showed me the fallen nature of my five-year-old daughter. My little baby is wicked. (laughs) Here's why it's so wicked. Because she wanted the credit for what someone else had done. She didn't want to mention Jordan because somehow it would diminish the accolades given to her for what she'd accomplished. Even if she told me Jordan taught her, the fact that she could do it is enough. I'm proud as a father. But she needed it all for herself. She needed to be the hero of her own story. I think it's so important that we give testimony because when we do it, we're publicly acknowledging, I did not pick myself up by my bootstraps. I did not save my own marriage. I did not deliver myself from cancer. I did not get myself back on my feet financially. This is all God, and if he doesn't get the credit, I'm a a thief and a robber. God did this, and he should get all the credit. I get to enjoy the fruit of what he's done. Why do I have to steal from him the credit as well? And I'm telling you that even just by virtue of silence, by not volunteering the information, you steal from God. Do you get that? If someone you love was drowning and I jumped in and saved their life and you saw the whole thing and then I walked away and someone said, who saved your life? And you just sat there. It's robbing me of credit. Now I know that some of us don't like giving testimony because we hate public speaking. By nature we're very private people. But I want to tell you that to some degree that, that heart that wants to be so guarded, so private, very often he could steal from God glory that belongs to him. Because really it's not about you and about how shy you are or how freaked out you get in front of crowds. It's about telling a story that needs to be told because when it's told, look what it says. Many other people see and fear and they put their trust in God. In other words, through our testimony of what God has done, other people start to see God so much more clearly. And they get hope and they get encouragement because in our lives, God was faithful and they start to believe, maybe in my life too, God will be faithful as well. And it makes sense. But you know what else? It's not just after the trials that we testify. But what David also teaches us is that during, during the trials, we testify. Do you understand that? During the trials we testify. Why is it important that while we're struggling and waiting, we speak of what God has done? Because looking back to the past produces confidence about the future. Here's the thing. The future scares everybody. It's not just you. The the future scares everyone because it cannot be known. You can make some predictions. I'm sure your stockbroker tells you he can see the future. Anyone who claims that's a liar, we don't know what the future holds. I might not finish this sermon and Jesus might come back. The future is completely a blank canvas and God will write whatever he darn well decides to write on that canvas. The past, however, is a known entity. It's already in the books. It doesn't change. And when you look back into the past, what you see is a God revealing himself. And this God, unlike us, doesn't shift or evolve over time. He doesn't lose power like a used battery. This God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the God you see from your childhood or from last year or even from yesterday is the exact same God who will meet you today and take care of tomorrow. It's a good place just to throw in an amen, just to show me you're awake. The truth is that when we look forward, we get scared. But when we look backwards, we see God. And it starts to make us realize, He has always been faithful to me. Maybe my marriage is in trouble today. But there was a time when I longed to be married. Even in a difficult marriage, I just didn't want to be alone and I thought I'd never find anyone. And God brought that person to my life. That was faithfulness. And now, even through this present trial, this faithful God is still there. You know, when I was doing my one-month internship in Tijuana, Mexico during seminary studies, I've told you a number of stories from from this this month in my life it was such a packed time of seeing God. Well, there was this guy named Andrew. He was a, a he was from Oregon. He was a missionary, a Birkenstock wearing hippie. This guy was um, he was so cool. He was everything I was not. I was this uptight palm pilot carrying dude from the Midwest, always running around. He was just whatever man. Let's just you know serve the Lord. And he'd go, Hey, let's just walk to America today. And he, I'd be like, What? He goes, no, Let's just walk. He's he's in his slippers, and we just walk into La Jolla and. He's just a weird guy. And one day he goes, Dave, I want to show you something wonderful. And meet me outside at 5.30 in the morning. It's going to be a great treat. I'm not a morning person, so I'm like, well, just tell me what it is. Because it's something in the ocean you'll never forget. So I meet him at the crack of dawn. And he brings me down to the beach, and he, there's this big rock with graffiti all over it. And he goes, let's just sit down right here. Did you bring your Bible? And I brought my Bible. And he goes, let's just start reading. And pretty soon what you're going to see It's this family of dolphins that are just going to start swimming just off the shore, jumping up and down, playing and putting on a show, and it's going to make your heart leap at the beauty of it. And like, man, you have just, I don't know, you're just way too far out there for me. Are you sure? And he goes, trust me, they will come. And he woke me up at 5.30, it's 6.30, I've read a lot of Bible, ain't a single dolphin showed up. I'm looking over at him, kind of getting a little bitter, like, you know, I'm doubting him, but he kept looking at me going, don't worry, they will come, just wait for it. And I'm wondering, how can you be so sure? It's because he had sat in that same spot every day for six months. And every single day that family of dolphins had shown up. And so he knew that unless there was a dolphin serial killer on the loose, that same day would be no different than yesterday, they would come and believe it or not, around 7 a.m., there they were. And that's not an actual picture because it was much more beautiful than that. And when you hear the sounds and you see it, it's like people. They were just having fun, jumping around. And I'm having my quiet time to the sight of dolphins for free. I wasn't even at SeaWorld. It didn't cost me 40 bucks. Just right there. And I just remember thinking, this is our God. You wait for him, he always shows up. He's done it before. And he will always, always do it again. You know, I know suffering gives us amnesia. It makes it hard to remember. You start saying things like, was God ever faithful? Did God ever love me? Did he ever really work in my life? Listen to what David says. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders you have done. The things you planned for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many To declare, What David says is, yes, I know when you're in trouble, it's hard to see where God was faithful. But if you just start thinking about it, one by one, like stars in the night sky, they will come to your remembrance and you will realize that God has been far better to you than you could ever imagine. Do not let the pain of today give you amnesia about yesterday. Don't let it erase your memory banks. God has been exceedingly faithful. And that same God who never changes is with you right now. We're called to bear testimony about what God has done and is doing in our lives. Even the things that carry stigma, even the things that cause so much pain they're hard to talk about, they are not just our private story a part of our personal journey, but they are meant for the church and for the many others who share life with us who are going to go through similar pain and need to see God through the lens of your life. One of the most memorable parts of last year's congregational retreat, if you remember, was when several of you were asked to go up and give your testimonies. And the thing is, Pastor Mitch was a good speaker, but most people I talked to reminiscing about the retreat, they could not remember a single thing he preached. But they remember every testimony that was given. That just amazes me, because the story of our lives has real power in the lives of other people. And it just occurs to me that sometimes it seems like God's not working at Harvest, because people aren't talking about how God's working at Harvest. And a dear sister came up to me this morning and just said, God is working here. I'm seeing Him do amazing things. And I was so encouraged by that. But what I want to challenge and invite you to do is whenever someone tells you, can you share that story? Can you give a testimony? Can we record you saying that again? Don't choose that moment to become shy and go, Oh, shucks. No, I, no, I, don't, I don't like to be the... in in the public attention don't do that because you don't own that story alone it isn't your private property it's the story of God he owns it and he wants to declare it for his glory one of the greatest acts of service you can do in this church is to publicly declare what God is doing in your life even through pain and shame and suffering when you see God on the other side of that give him the glory Say it loud. I tell you that when you do it in obedience and faith, a lot of people are going to have their lives changed by what you just said about God. Most people tune out when I'm talking because I'm paid to do this. When you talk, people are like, shut up, a real person's talking about God. <laughs> Listen, they're just like us, but they saw God. That's important. We're going to start asking you in the year ahead, more and more of you, to tell your story. It's one of my treats as a pastor. I hear all the stories. But many of them get buried in the ground like lost treasure. We're going to start asking you. And you're going to hear this question a lot. Would you be willing to share that with the church? May I ask you in the name and authority of Jesus Christ, let your answer always be yes. Yes, I will. And may God get the glory from that. Last thing I want to do is belittle the trial you might be going through or make light of your suffering. But we've all been there. We will all be there again. There is a right way to wait and endure. Can I just encourage you in summary? Don't be afraid to cry out for help. But don't cry out to everybody else. Cry out first to God. He's the one who can help you. And he will incline himself and he will hear you when you cry. And wait patiently. You know, Don't just listen to your deceitful heart. Don't just flail about in a panic. Calm your heart before God. Listen to what he says and then tell your heart the truth. Be still before God, and he will pull you out of the rubble. And finally, when he has been faithful, and he will be faithful, he will show up. Tell the world, with as loud a voice as God will give you, what God has done. I promise you, people's lives will change, and God will become more visible to the power of your story. Why don't we bow together for a word of prayer? <clears throat> and you know, in fact, some Sundays I feel like we hear God's word and then we sort of rush through this last part and we're in a hurry to get some nachos and go home, but I... And I don't want to drag anything up, but I feel like this morning we should really just respond to God and what He might be saying to some of us. There are some people right now in our church who are really stuck. And there's this challenge in their lives that is sucking the life out of them and they're losing their hope. And it's too big a burden for them to keep bearing, and they don't know how they're going to get out. And I want to ask if just collectively we, all of us, can just pray for those people. And if you know some of them, you, know, you don't have to shout it out loud, but pray for that person whose story you know. Stand with them in the midst of their worry and their fear and their pain and say, God, help this person to really respond to what you've said today. Can we just bow a moment and let's pray that right now. I know some of us know of others who are really bearing a burden. Let's pray for those friends right now. Let's not daydream. Let's not miss this chance. Let's really go to bed for our friends, our loved ones. There are people bearing a huge burden at our church. Let's really lift up prayers and ask God to come and be their rescuer and to show himself faithful in their lives. let pray. One other thing we really need to pray about this morning Is that yes, we can easily trust God for the little stuff. But what about that big thing in your life? The one that doesn't seem to ever go away or change or get better. The one that you're giving up on. What about that? Is God too big for that? Too little. Does it scare him as much as it scares you? Then I think we need to cry out. Just like that man who cried out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. We can't go to God for the little stuff and take the big stuff into our own hands. That's just not the way it works. God deserves the respect being trusted for the stuff that's too big for you and I know you've prayed about it before but this morning lay it all out there again just say God I believe that in this part of my life you're not finished you're still going to show up you're going to deliver me let's pray that right now Heavenly Father We call you that on purpose this morning. Heavenly Father. We confess together that when we're in pain or when we're scared, we too easily forget about you. And we pray through the power of your word through the ongoing ministry of your Holy Spirit in our lives that you would just inject yourself back into our lives again everything else is empty without you and no one has the power that you have you are the one who is mighty to save You are the one who rescues people. And some of us this morning desperately need you to rescue us. We are in the pit of destruction and trapped in the miry bog. And we're crying out, incline your ears to hear us. And pull us out and put our feet on a rock. Lord, teach us to be bold in testifying about you. Open our mouths to speak the words of what you've done in our lives and how faithful, how embarrassingly good you are to us. May you become the star of the movie of our lives. Come, Lord, and take your place in every life in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.